It's Thursday, May 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and joining me in studio, we have Motley Fool analysts Andy Cross and Emily Flippin. Welcome. How are we doing? Hey, good. Doing well. Well, good to have you here. We've got lots to talk about. A rough day for Square, an even rougher day for Eventbrite. Woof. Tough. We've got Fitbit selling smartwatches. Who knew? They're capable of it. They are getting it done. And we've got Tesla raising some cash. So we'll get to all of that. But let's begin with Under Armour. Shares up around 4% at the time of our taping. Now, Andy, I look at the news here. Better than expected earnings and sales. International revenue up 12%. Now, that's the good news. North America, eh, not so great. Sales down 3%. Yeah, that's right, Max. So sales were up 2% to $1.2 billion. That beat the uh, consensus uh, estimate. Same with the earnings per share, were up a little bit. They were expected to be flat, and they were negative last year for the first quarter. Uh, wholesale revenue is up 5%. Direct to consumer guys down 6%, which kind of surprised me. North American sales, Mac, as you said, down 3%. That's 70% of their sales, so obviously pretty important there. Really, international up 12%, great. Um, Inventory is down 24%, which helped their cash flows. Um, the costs down. So the, the cost controls, they, they cut some salary last year. That Kevin Plank and his team are, are kind of implementing here. When you're not really growing very fast, if you want to continue to grow your earnings, and it, it's been a rough story here, the stock's down by half of the last three years. As the turnaround for Under Armour continues to go forward, they got to get their cost control. I mean, they were doing 400 million of um, operating profits a year ago on 5 billion of sales, and now they're doing 3 million of sales. They're doing um, 400 million in, in, in operating profits. So, trying to get the profit margin picture really right for Under Armour is a story when you're not growing very fast. You got to get that cost structure in line, and they're making some progress there. Well, I think it's they're at that point where you're either going to invest a lot and try to drive growth, or you're going to cost cut, exactly like Andy said. So I think there was an attempt to kind of boost awareness, right? Boost that brand name recognition, increase sales, and so maybe they're still going through that process. I'm not entirely sure that it's it's not a success as it stands right now. Um, I think there's still potential there for them to kind of turn this brand around. But I agree that if that doesn't succeed, then your only option is to cost cut. You know, I will say footwear sales up eight percent. That was actually a nice bright sign. Apparel sales, um, you know, up one percent or so, and that's that's the largest part of their business. So they are seeing some nice little growth. Here, Nike actually had a really nice North American quarter. I think they were up seven percent. So the comparison, the competition out there, not going away certainly. Uh, so Under Armour has its work cut out for from for them, but we're starting to see the light. And obviously, the stock has done really well over the last. I think this year, the stock's up twenty five percent. So investors are recognizing the work they have to do, but Kevin Plank and his team have to continue to uh, get it right. And let's talk about Kevin Plank, the CEO, because he has said that Under Armour plans to stay true to its performance gear, despite the fact that athleisure really gaining momentum in the U.S. And so, my question I don't own the stock, but as a potential shareholder, as someone looking at this company, why wouldn't Under Armour just embrace that athleisure market? Well, I think they kind of have. I mean, Kevin Plank started the business. He's as, in denial, is what he, you're saying. He, yeah, well, I think he is. I mean, obviously, Lululemon's really done a great, fantastic job on this in, in, that, in that regard. And I think Kevin Plank sees Under Armour as a real performance brand, and he doesn't want to try to dilute that by going into the athleisure um, nomenclature and pushing the performance, especially around footwear and around so many of their sponsorships, continuing to drive that perception that they're all about performance. And he doesn't want to give that up. And um, on a related note, I just discovered 
stretchy jeans. <laughs> do you do stretchy jeans at all? Uh, I do do a little stretchy. They've got jeans. the stretch in the waist, there. and yeah. they're lightweight, yeah. and it is a game changer. Yeah. I've been wearing like traditional jeans for years, and it feels like you're wearing like a burlap sack. You get those from Costco? Um, no, no, I've, I've switched to, to Levi's. I'm oh, nice! Bumping up my game. Oh, congratulations! There you Supporting go. Levi's. So a shout out yeah. for stretchy jeans, stretchy lightweight jeans, game changer. Okay, well. Shares of Eventbrite down 30% on a big earnings miss and weak guidance. Now, this is an event ticketing company that's now trading at its lowest level since it IPO'd last September. Emily, is there is there is there good news here? It always sounds so dramatic when he says something's trading at its lowest level, but this is a recently new IPO. Um, and while the results weren't what the market expected, and the company <laughs> is increasingly unprofitable, um, and that's an understatement. Tell me more. It's, it's actually there was some good stuff in here, right? I feel like management is taking a long-term approach. There was some growth and throughout all their segments. Actually, they had revenue growth, they had ticketing growth. Um, the issue really is just that profit. Profitability, and they're noticing that they're losing a lot of customers thanks to issues regarding this acquisition that they made of a company called Ticketfly. Instead of keeping the old Ticketfly platform, they were going to migrate existing customers over to the event by Bright platform platform and they're having issues kind of retaining customers throughout that process but management really keeps that long-term view they're saying look we want to have one central platform these are short-term issues that we're going to get through um, and then in the future you know we're really going to be able to drive growth through this platform the the issue I see with Eventbrite and the reason why I've haven't pulled the trigger although today's drop does make it more appealing the problem is that they offer a lot of stuff for free so you can list an event for free. You can, you know, get all this payment processing, all of this stuff. Eventbrite just gets a fee per ticket. That's their business model. The issue is they claim to be profitable with scale. And I have heard that before. We've all heard that before. And it's a risky thing when you're doing as many as much in sales as they are. And you're saying, we just need to do more. We'll yeah. get profitable if we just keep doing more. So I think in the future it's possible that this company will start needing to charge for more things on their website. And when that happens, will they lose customers? It's the old joke about we're losing money, but we'll make it up on volume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, a nice re a reminder here that um, in, in a market of real exciting IPOs that not all IPOs fly to the moon. And Eventbrite, uh, recently public, um, has had some struggle, struggles here uh, in March. The stock got hit pretty aggressively as well, too, after concerns with the fourth quarter. Now, this is the second time in a few months. Um, the shares since Lyft went public, I will say, are beating <laughs> are beating Lyft up until uh, today. Um, so, they, they had that bright sign going for them, and although the, the bogey there, not, not so hard to... Bit of a low bar <laughs> there. But... Low bar, yes. Um, so, a reminder that you know IPOs, they do, when they, when they hit the Public markets, you know, investors have certain expectations, and if the the companies can't deliver on that, and Eventbrite, you know, it was not a very pretty quarter, really, when you look at some of the numbers they were putting up. But that that said, the stock had rebounded a little bit over the last few months after that pretty dramatic drop, and and then uh, investors today, obviously, um, not very encouraged by what they're hearing. So I want to broaden the lens a bit, um, and not just talk about Eventbrite, but if you have a stock. And it falls 30%. Okay. So you own a stock and it falls 30% on earnings or some event. What questions are you asking or what are you looking at in trying to decide whether you should stay the course, whether you should potentially buy more, or whether you should just cut your losses and sell that stock? How do you think about it? 
Well, for me, it's really what's driving that fall. And you'll notice that the market is really looking at most a year out on these investments. So when you see a 30% pullback like we did with Eventbrite today, that's in response to the year's outlook, right? We don't see a lot of great growth because they're losing customers thanks to this poor migration of the Ticketfly platform. However, if what causes the drop does not undermine the full value proposition that you made when you made the investment. So if you're making the investment because you really believe in the idea of a centralized ticketing platform that's going to be the go-to place to be for ticketing, then this is short-term news, right? It's a great buying opportunity. It does nothing to undermine your original value. Yeah, I think that's an important point. So any short-term drop, whether it's up 5, 10, 30% certainly, there seems to be maybe some operational challenges that investors are were not expecting and now maybe having a little bit of lack of confidence in the team to be able to get that done. But to Emily's point, Thinking about continuing to remind yourself that you're investing in this business, these businesses, ideally three, five years, and looking at the platforms and the potential for them to be able to grow market share in a growing market is the most important thing for for these young technology companies. And if you still have the belief that their products and their team can deliver on that, then obviously looking at stock drops could be a nice bargain opportunity. But you have to understand that teams and management. Um, Teams have to be able to deliver on their promises, and if investors don't see that, the stock can be in some volatile times. Okay, and I want to bring it back to Eventbrite. So, taking what you just said there, Andy, do you think about IPOs and recent IPOs like Eventbrite? Do you think about them differently? Do you keep them on a shorter leash? Because this company just went public last September, in September of 2018. So, in the case of a recent IPO, if it falls 30%, do you say, you know what? I'm going to apply a little higher bar or a different level of scrutiny. I don't, um, frankly, Mac. The IPOs get lumped together as a as a group, really, and like when they come to the public markets, they they often are looking at the the recent IPOs to see how they can price their stock. But from an investing, from an analytical perspective. From an investing perspective, I take it case by case to look at the business and the people running that and the opportunity for the stock to perform over the next three to five years. Well, a rough day for Square, the financial technology company, um, or fintech as we say in the business. Shares of Square down almost 9% after reporting slowing growth and a widening loss. Now, Andy, it still posted better than expected earnings, but investors not impressed. Yeah, I think the guidance was a little weaker. I mean, sales were up 43% and up 39% if you back out the recent acquisition of Weebly and Zest and Zesty. Uh, gross payment volumes, which is the number, the the volume of transactions going through the Square ecosystem, um, was up 27%. That was a little lower than some of the estimates, and um, a little lower for. From the estimates for the second consecutive quarter, so I think investors are saying, "Wow, is the payments business kind of slowing?" Their transaction revenues, which is almost seventy percent of their sales, were up twenty six percent. Subscription services revenue through things like the Cash App, that's the peer to peer um, uh, payments um, processing transactions uh, application. The subscription revenues was up 126% max. So, continuing to see momentum into the ecosystem. Look, Square's a $30 billion company. The stock's done phenomenally well. Jack Dorsey has done a really nice job managing this business. Uh, and investors just have pretty high expectations. And maybe just seeing is the growth kind of starting to plateau for Square. It's a very competitive space with other players out there now. Shopify, in particular, um, they are starting to kind of go head-to-head now a little bit more and more. Um, investors may be wondering if the growth might be plateauing. It's still very healthy for a company that size. Maybe some of the confidence isn't quite as high as it was a year ago. 
And fun fact, tying it back to Eventbrite, there's actually been some speculation that Eventbrite contributed to this poor quarter for Square, because Square is the exclusive payments processor for a lot of Eventbrite's... Uh-huh. Uh, it depends on the country yeah. you're in, but for a lot of Eventbrite's business, they do go through Square. And so, I mean, that's a good thing for Square, having some exclusivity there, right? It shows you the value of what Square provides. But the flip side is, is it's a reminder that Square is not immune from the volatility of its underlying customers. And whether or not Eventbrite really moved the needle for Square, to be seen. Uh, but the fact is, is that you know if they're not driving payments volume, then it will negatively affect them. Well, it did it did move the needle in a bad way because they took a 14 million loss on the other income line from the investment they have in Eventbrite, and that was before today's drop. So they will take unless the stock <laughs> recovers. <laughs> in a more direct way. When the, the accounting rules require Square to take a loss on that from the from the operating loss uh, when they look at the stock price if the stock underperforms. So, yes, I think Emily's right. That does the Eventbrite underlying business. If Square is providing the as the exclusive provider in the U.S. of their payments. Um, Operations for Eventbrite. That's actually pretty attractive if Eventbrite can continue to grow. But um, yeah, Emily, you're right. Like it does. You have to look at the underlying customer performance of Square customers to really understand the the growth potential there. And Andy, you mentioned Shopify earlier, and and I don't really associate Shopify and Square. You know, when I think about the war on cash and that that competitive landscape, and I'm curious when you think about the war on cash, do you have a favorite in this space right now? Is it Shopify or is there another name? That when you think about just that big war on cash that our very own Jason Moser loves to talk about. Well, I like about. Shopify, Mac. I mean, uh, uh, Square bought Weebly, which is a um, website design company, and they're now integrating that into their own online store. That plays a little bit against what Shopify does on their online store. Shopify now has a payments business as well, Shopify Payments, so their customers can use a Shopify payments platform. Um, they actually have now an in store um, uh, technology and, and, and hardware that they use for some of their clients, Shopify. Does so that kind of competes a little bit more against Square? So these massive companies are starting to bump into each other a little bit. So it is—it's a massive space. The payments business is huge globally, Emily. So there's lots of room for growth. But you are seeing a lot of really great companies and very innovative companies starting to compete more and more head to head. Yeah, I definitely think there's room for two winners. And it's so funny when you look at Square and Shopify and how they ended up competing, starting off on two different playing fields, right? You have someone more payment, someone more platform, and then slowly <laughs> they've been migrating until they reach each other in the middle. And I think we're going to start seeing a bit of a shakeout while they start to compete with each other. But like Andy said, the payment space is big enough that I'm not worried about either of these companies as a result of this increasing competition. And I'll just add, you know, there's lots of great international plays when you look at the payment space. The payment space in the U.S. arguably is growing a little bit slower. Um, we've been a little bit more reluctant to move away from cash than other countries. So it's a fun place to look at. It's a fun industry to examine, and I like both of these companies. I'll notice note that Square also issued more than 500 million in small business loans across 70,000 loans this quarter, and they now have done 4.5 billion loans to date. So they are kind of getting into that loan business as well too. So another way to kind of expand their reach into new clients. Shares of Tesla up on news that um, Tesla is raising more money. Tesla Tesla plans to raise up to two billion dollars, um, 1.35 billion of that coming from convertible notes, another 650 million coming from new stock, um, new equity. Emily, what does that mean for investors? Why are shares up 
just on news that Tesla is raising some more money. Well, $2 billion is nothing to scoff at when you're Tesla and you burn through money very quickly, right? <laughs> Especially when you had a quarter there where you were not generating any cash to keep yourself going. So, I think it's if the market responded positively because we had seen a company that was so depressed because people were very genuinely afraid about the long-term viability. This $2 billion buys Tesla some room to run and we see a lot of other initiatives. It was also announced today that you know Tesla really is moving forward with their plans to get into the insurance business for instance. And what they're going to need for that is is cash. They need capital to keep them going. So while this dilutes shareholders undoubtedly, um, it's a convertible note, there is some equity. Musk himself is buying 2 million dollars of it. Um, so I guess that's your silver lining and it also means like hey, if you believe in what Tesla is Going to do if they actually are going to revolutionize the space, especially as it applies to self-driving technology. Clearly, they're not there yet. But if they get enough capital to allow themselves to sustain until they reach the point where they're able to scale self-driving, then hey, maybe maybe there's some value there. Andy, yeah, I think that they there's been a lots of conversations <clears throat> with Tesla on um, the the capital position of the company. So in lots of um, Thinking through how they can continue to support their business if they are are, are um, burning through some cash, not profitable, though they have had profitable quarters. But Elon mentioned uh, that hey, you know, in the last quarter it could be a, t- a time to to raise some capital and and sustain and beef up the balance sheet a little bit, and they, they've done that. And I think investors are reacting very positively because it's another piece of information they have that is now um, clear, and they don't have to think about it and wonder if it is out there or if they how much they are going to do. And now they know that information, so having that piece of information puts that uncertainty to the side. And they can now focus more on what is Tesla going to do and Elon Musk going to do to actually become a profitable car-making company. Yeah, and for a lot of people, if you were already a Tesla bear, this probably just makes you feel more bearish, right? Because you're like, oh, this is just further shareholder dilution. It's another lie. It's another lie. They said they didn't need capital. They clearly need capital. And if you're a bull, then that's exactly it, right? Mm-hmm. You're sitting here thinking, this is amazing. This gives them so much more capital to work with, so much more room to run. If you believe in the leadership, if you believe in the vision, this means a lot. Either way, I think the point that you made about this taking away an unknown is the most valuable piece. Yep. And let's close with um, a little Fitbit. When we were first talking about this story, shares were up on earnings. Um, Fitbit really getting it done with their smartwatches and fitness trackers doing okay. Now, at the time of our taping, shares down a bit. But Emily, what's the story here with Fitbit? Are, are they are they taking it to Apple? I, I can't help but think that there is a reminder here. Every single time Fitbit reports, I feel like it's it's. Usually good news. We've seen over the past two quarters good news from Fitbit. Um, in fact, smartwatch sales this quarter were up 117% year over year. It was a low base to start with, but still very notable. Um, and there's still great performance in terms of tracker sales. Those were up 17% in terms of revenue and 36% in terms of devices. But I think the market then responds because you're like, oh, wait, Fitbit's still here, right? Yeah. It's a, they report, and it's a reminder that, like, Oh gosh, this company! You know, it's fallen from from the great potential that it initially was seen when it when IPO'd, and there was this hope for what Fitbit could be medically, based on devices, all this stuff. And they, it's clear that Fitbit then lost out to Apple. But here's what's I what I think is really interesting. I, I will admit, I am a Fitbit shareholder. I bought in when it was way too high, um, <laughs> so I would not call myself a Fitbit bull at this point. But I am holding on, and this is because we're seeing demands from the low end of the market. So. 
if you're wearing an Apple Watch, that's not a purchase that you want to make regularly. That's that's a piece of hardware mm-hmm. that you'd prefer to keep, you know, running as long as possible. But I do think that there's probably a lower tier market of Fitbit customers who probably replace these devices once a year, and if they're cheap enough, then it gets the job done. They're willing to upgrade to whatever the newest device is. And we see Fitbit having great success selling these devices for a little bit cheaper, right? Cheaper, kind of undercutting Apple. I will say that while their services revenue is up 70%, actually, so really significant service revenue, that's essentially the subscription style services that you'll get fitness coaching, fitness health. Um, some red flags I saw from Apple, which is Apple almost giving us the same party line that Fitbit gave us when they IPO'd about the health potential of these trackers, and I was almost having bad flashbacks there. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, is there actually any value in the technology? Because you know, if Apple can find value, and if, if what they say is true, that they find value in the health technology that they provide, maybe there still is something there for Fitbit. Or maybe they're just both wrong. I think it's very hard to be a low-cost um, producer uh, as, as, a, as a $1 billion company or $1.3 billion company, a low-cost producer of hardware um, when you're competing against the likes of um, all the other technology companies. Emily, you're right. The software, the services business, just like we saw with Square, tends to be the bigger growing opportunity for these companies. But the ecosystem that Fitbit once prided itself on and, and having, um, I just don't think that's enough to really sustain the business long term. And again, when you think out, say, five years, where is Fitbit going to be? I think just the challenge of moving down the price point for these kind of fitness watches or fitness trackers is going to be very difficult for them to compete against the likes of Apple, who is who's clearly aggressively going into that market, and, and let's as a reminder to our listeners, Fitbit is unprofitable, right? Right. So it's not like they can just keep going doing what they're doing forever, right? And there's a reason why Nike decided to get out of that yeah. market for the most point. Okay, so let's let's you know let's throw Fitbit a bone here. Okay, if you're going to design a smartwatch or a fitness tracker, what do you want? What do you need in the smartwatch or fitness tracker that you're designing? I, you know, I'm a, like I said, I own a Fitbit. I've owned a Fitbit for a while, and it was for two reasons. Um, it was cheap, right? It was cheaper than buying myself an Apple Watch, and at the time where I bought it, it was the only, really, the only watch on the market that would track my runs. So I like to run outside. It would, you know, give me my mile times, give me my pacing. Um, now that there are clearly other competitors, whether that be Garmin or Apple in the market, I'm not sure what. I what would compel me to buy a Fitbit over an alternative <laughs> That's product? That's not good. <laughs> Andy, what do you need? Uh, someone who a, a device that lies to me, just tells me I'm doing great. <laughs> I just love that. Beefs up my my makes me feel good and just been like, hey, yeah, you're doing great. You're doing great while I'm sitting on my couch watching Game of Thrones. That's great. I, I have a kind of a variation of that, but I want something that basically takes my current activity level. And shows me what I'll look like ten years from now, and it's and it's and it's like an artist rendering of my photo. That would be motivational. Yeah, and I'm exactly. like, you know what? That Maybe idea. I'll take the stairs yeah. today. Or, yeah, you know? right, exactly. Maybe I'll skip the mac and cheese at right. Rockland. Yeah, you know? exactly. Elvis <laughs> needed that back in the day like, to go from his. I mean, he right? could, he could still be with it, us. Be great. No more peanut butter and bacon sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> Hold off on the bacon. Okay, so the desert island question. You're on a desert island. You don't have anything to do, but somehow you're able to invest in stocks. Just go with it. You've got like you know, I don't know. You got some snappy app. Under Armour, Square, Tesla, Eventbrite, or Fitbit. You have to own one of those for the next five years. Where are you going? Oh, this is so easy. This is so easy. It's Square, hands mm-hmm. down for me. 
Yeah, I was going to say the same yeah, thing. Yeah, out of the companies here, it's not to say that the other ones can't be great investments, but there's a lot more unknown there. And Square is just such a well-run company operating yep. in such an important and growing space. We have faith in the management. I just feel like that's a company that is going to be around for the long yeah, term. Totally, the rest of them... <laughs> totally agree, Emily. Like It's a $31 billion company. Um, Growing, even though the numbers may be slowing a little bit from from maybe expectations, you know you're still growing your your processing volumes. Um, you know, 25, 27, 28 percent. That's pretty impressive. So no hesitation. No hesitation. What if I told you Eventbrite was 30 percent off? Okay, well, you can always email us at marketfoolery at fool.com. That's marketfoolery at fool.com. Andy, Emily, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mac. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Mac Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.